podcast called Intrepid. I'm Stephanie Carvin, and once again, hosting a distributed operations version of Intrepid podcast. Anyone following international affairs in recent weeks couldn't avoid the Middle East. Of course, there was the killing of Baghdadi, the leader of the Islamic State. There's been protests in Iraq, Lebanon, and Egypt. And recently, breaking news today, there's been an announcement that Iran will be operating or restarting 1,000 centrifuges at its facilities at Fordow, which is near the religious center Qom, which is, of course, the latest blow to the nuclear deal. Here to discuss this is are some of Canada's best analysts on these topics, Amar Amar Singham and Tomaz Junot. Of course, I'm a little biased because they're intrepid podcast editors and they're also my friends, but I couldn't think of anyone better or who I'd like to talk to more about these issues. So thanks for coming on, guys. Thanks. Thank you. So let's start with the killing of Baghdadi. Uh, and basically, you know, it was about just over a week ago, Trump gave... Uh, I'm going to use the word interesting press conference following that. So uh, what do you think was the most important takeaway one week later? Um, I mean, the, 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 the main takeaway, of course, is that uh, within a few days, the Islamic State uh, replaced or at least acknowledged uh, the death of Baghdadi and also acknowledged the death of um, Abu Hassan al-Muhajir, who was their spokesperson, uh, who replaced Adnani um, and, and replaced him with a new caliph uh, named Abu Ibrahim al-Hashimi al-Qureshi, uh, and, and the name itself, of course, is important because it ties him um, to uh, the Iraqi uh, Hashemite clan as well as the Qureshi tribe um, and, and uh, basically says, basically a way of communicating that the caliphate uh, is continuing and the caliphate structure is continuing. Um, and they also uh, appointed a new spokesperson uh, named Abu Hamza al-Qureshi um, also to kind of communicate that, uh, you know, the, the kind of religious heritage and the importance of this declaration of the caliphate from 2014 um, hasn't ended with the death of Baghdadi and, and his spokesperson. So why was it important to send those signals to uh, its audience, particularly the Iraqi audience? Right. I mean, I think I think if you if he, for example, um, I used to talk to like ISIS fighters back in 2017, for example, when they would yeah, say you have weird hobbies, okay. <coughs> Sorry. Where, where they would say, um, you know, maybe we don't need a Qureshi to replace Baghdadi. Maybe we can, uh, you know, pick somebody else to kind of carry on the fight. But I think I think uh, the, the selection of a um, someone from the Qureshi tribe is, is signals that, um, you know, there's a lineage to the Prophet Muhammad that, uh, that the kind of notion of the caliphate and, and uh, it, it hasn't died with Baghdadi, right? And, and so um, it's a, it, it kind of follows on from, for example, Baghdadi's uh, March video where he showed, where he placed a lot of emphasis on the provinces that ISIS has established around the world, that, that uh, this isn't simply a kind of Iraqi and Syrian movement anymore, that there's an international connection um, and, and, and so on. So that, that this kind of global caliphate is still very much, uh, very much continuing. Jamal, did you want to come in on that? Uh, one week later, do you, what, what do you think is the biggest takeaway? Well, I think that, that one week later, uh, typically there, there, you know, it's, it's hard to come to any firm conclusions because we have to take some time to, to let the dust settle a bit after a week, you know, the Islamic state, you know, in a, in a limited way, like Al Qaeda in 2011, it's a big organization. It has some very competent, very experienced, very dedicated cadres at the senior levels, all the way down to lower levels. So, you know, life goes on and it's business as usual on some fronts for the Islamic state. The one thing that I, that I find interesting over over the mid to longer term is, you know, the what are the factors that shape the evolution of a terrorist group, and you know, what is the interplay between the internal factors and the external factors? 
internally, um, what kind of leader is the new guy? Is he going to be a stronger leader than uh, al-Baghdadi, in which case it's bad news for all of us? And there's a precedent for that. When uh, Baghdadi replaced his two predecessors who were killed in 2010, he turned out to be mostly a stronger leader. So that had a, a some impact on, on the evolution of the organization. Is he going to be a weaker leader, in which case it would weaken the organization with time? But at the same time, if you look at how uh, both al-Qaeda and Islamic State have evolved over the last 10 years or so, or even before that in the case of al-Qaeda, um, and, and predecessor organizations for the Islamic State, external factors to the organization played a major role in shaping what these groups became. In the case of the Islamic State and predecessors, it was the civil war in Syria, it was political dysfunction in Iraq, uh, and right now what we're clearly seeing, which is what we saw you know, more than a week ago before Baghdadi was, uh, was killed, was that in Iraq, political dysfunction, if anything, is intensifying. In Syria, as much as the war is slowly waning down, um, you know, there is all, of, all the elements are there in Syria in the very long term for massive dissatisfaction among the country's Sunni majority. So the, you know, the recruitment pool uh, will be there in Syria. So externally, at least, we'll see internally, but externally, all the variables are there for Islamic State to continue to, to thrive. One thing we know about these organizations, of course, they love chaos, they love kind of political instability, um, they thrive in, in these kinds of environments. And I think, um, you know, what happens in Iraq going forward with the, with the protests, whether that's going to expand into the north, um, and then um, also the kind of continued instability uh, with, with, uh, with what's happening in Syria, I think will all, uh, you know, provide kind of apt uh, environment for this, some of these organizations to at least stay uh, strong, if not, if not grow stronger. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that really struck me is, you know, I remember in 2011 when Osama bin Laden was killed, there was this almost sense of jubilation that was happening. There were people like cheering outside the White House, all these different things. And, you know, we haven't really seen that this time. And I don't think it's just because of Trump. I think it's also the fact that we seem to perhaps have learned the lesson that these things don't really make terrorism go away. This is not how terrorism ends. They, it just means it morphs into something different and potentially more dangerous over time. Uh, one thing I would ask is, um, you know, just Amar, going back to your comments about, you know, the appointment of Al-Qurashi as the leader. Originally, the Islamic State, one of the di major differences it had with Al-Qaeda was that it had a focus on the near enemy, that it was more concerned with kind of the local rather than the more global fight against, say, the United States. And it was really just kind of because of, of the U.S. invasion of Iraq in 2003, when there was a convergence of both the local and the global fight, that there was this alliance with Al-Qaeda. Do you think that these, this person who's been appointed um, you know, the fact that it is an Iraqi from a very specific area. Do you think this is a return to the idea of uh, the Islamic State being a local fight uh, or, you know, kind of striking against the near enemy, the corrupt, you know, what they see as the corrupt regimes as opposed to the far enemy? Or is the Islamic State just going to continue to be opportunistic for the short <coughs> and medium term? No, I don't. I don't think they'll go back to just focusing on the local conflict. I mean, uh, the, the the way they've established the caliphate, the way they've um, you know reached into European capitals and and all over the world to kind of recruit uh, the foreign fighter phenomenon, of course, um, and and kind of the from the very beginning sending sleeper cells, uh, or at least according to some reporting, uh, into European capitals to kind of uh, wait out uh, some kind of orders. 
Um, and also the, 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 the notion, which seems to be accurate, that this, uh, Abu Ibrahim al-Qureshi, the new caliph, um, has you know, religious training, has some battlefield experience, seems to have fought against the Americans, um, at least according to how they described him in the, uh, in the ISIS press release, um, all kind of signal that I think uh, the, the kind of international focus um, is, is very much going to be uh, part of his focus going forward. What, what have you been seeing in the Islamic State media channels um, as a result of the, say, not just the death, but also the announcement of a new uh, cal so-called caliph? Yeah, I, I think there's been, um, the, the, the first uh, response has been one we'd expect, of course, which is the all the fanboy channels and including uh, the kind of established provinces around the world have sent in their uh, oaths of allegiance or sent in their bayat. Um, and, and, and so that, that is kind of the first thing that we'd expect and which has started to happen. Um, but I think it's still too early to see um, what kind of happens going forward. I, I mean, it, it's an interesting dynamic because you realize uh, the importance of the office, right? The importance of the office of the caliph and, and the way um, that even though the vast majority of jihadists who are going to pledge allegiance to this individual have no idea who he is, <laughs> um, they, they, they still uh, respect the office enough to kind of uh, pledge allegiance to the next movement going forward. And so um, th th this is kind of a, an important thing to keep in mind when we talk about, you know, the death of these leaders, because I think the establishment of a broader um, caliphate structure uh, will, be, will be with us for some time. Yeah, and I guess I, what strikes me again about, you know, this whole situation is that Baghdadi, you know, he didn't do media in the way that Osama bin Laden did. He, he, he wasn't, he doesn't seem to have put himself at the forefront of the movement in the way we have seen other leaders of these kinds of movements doing so. He really put the movement first. If, when you think of the face of the Islamic State, yeah, of course, there's Baghdadi, but you think of the videos, the propaganda, the fighters, you know, it really... You know, if, if Baghdadi was clever in any regards, it was the fact that he was able to turn his movement into a mass movement and invite tens of thousands of fighters to come and join it. And so in this sense, I get the impression, you know, and, and I, I've done a little bit of work on, on decapitation of leadership and things like this. And the fact is, we, we just don't really know what the impact of it will be. It, it seems to me in this case, the Islamic State is actually really well placed just to continue on in in whatever kind of horrible form it, it shapes next. It shapes up to be next. No, absolutely. I think I think particularly with the, with the way they've established themselves internationally uh, in in, in uh, Afghanistan, Pakistan, and parts of Africa, Southeast Asia. Um, I think that's definitely the case in, in terms of what we can expect going forward. Um, you know, very interestingly, last year, uh, they consolidated all of their provinces in Iraq and Syria into two, um, and they kind of diversified their provinces um, internationally, particularly in the Khorasan province, which was, which was one province, but then they separated into uh, the Indian province, the Pakistan province, and so on. And um, so, so this they, is, uh, sorry, Khorasan, that's in Afghanistan, correct? Afghanistan, and then the, Pakistan. yeah, India, they, it's kind of the Indian subcontinent. Right. Um, and, so, and, and so the kind of diversification internationally and the consolidation in Syria and Iraq um, kind of signaled to me at, the point, at that point that, um, that, you know, they were kind of readying the propaganda landscape for increased activity uh, internationally while they kind of weighed out uh, whatever's going to happen in Iraq and Syria. 
So I just want to turn for a second to the kind of regional dynamics that surround this. I mean, there's been so much that's been happening in northern Syria in recent weeks, whether it's the U.S. withdrawal to the point where it's just now apparently guarding a couple oil facilities, which is not really the kind of look that I think is going to benefit it in the long run. Um, But there's also been questions about Turkey and what Turkey's role is. Is Turkey even a reliable ally anymore? I've seen some interesting comparisons being made between, um, you know, the fact that Osama bin Laden wasn't, you know, wasn't Pakistan. Did the Pakistanis actually know this and not actually give up this information to the Americans? Is this the same thing where, you know, Baghdadi was very close to the Turkish border? Did the Turks actually know? I'm not sure to the extent that that is conspiratorial or just lazy thinking, but I guess what is your view of the kind of regional dynamics here in the impact, uh, in the aftermath of this particular attack? Well, I, I mean, I'm, as a general rule, I'm always uh, somewhat suspicious, if not very suspicious of analogies when, when thinking about, you know, is this country the new Pakistan or the new whatever other country? Uh, and I find that the, the comparison between Turkey and Pakistan is especially not very useful. I mean, first of all, Turkey is an ally in the formal sense. It's a member of NATO with which the U.S. has an actual alliance. Pakistan is not and was never an ally. Uh, so that's, that's one big difference between the two. Um, Turkey was for a long time a, a close ally, always a problematic one. When, when thinking about the current challenges in the relationship with Turkey, it's important to remember that it was never especially easy. Uh, Turkey was always a bit of an outlier in NATO for, for a number of reasons. Um, and there were always tensions. Of course, that's not to diminish the current problems. They're higher than they were in the past. Uh, it's not clear that they are, uh, that, that, you know, the alliance can recover. Um, but at the same time, right, it's always been difficult. Whereas with Pakistan, there's not the background of historically close relationships as there is with Turkey. Yes, it's been a partner for a long time, but not to the extent that, that Turkey is. Um, and the other difference is that Turkey is actually a functioning state, uh, which Pakistan barely is. Um, you know, we, we won't go into a long discussion on, on, on the Pakistani state and the role of the military and the intelligence. That's a whole other podcast. <laughs> That's a whole other podcast. Uh, uh, but at the same time, right, these are two fundamentally different countries in completely different regional contexts. So that, that analogy, you know, there are some parallels in the sense that both are problematic for a number of reasons. Um, but it's, it's not a very useful one, I find. Do you have any other um, takes on kind of some of the regional dynamics that we've seen, whether it's the U.S. withdrawal or um, just kind of the aftermath and, and kind of the pieces just feel very much up in the air in this part of the world right now? And the pieces are very much up in the air because of the dynamics on the ground and because we simply don't know what the U.S. will do. Um, the U.S., and, and, and speaking specifically of President Trump, has been uh, completely unreliable and unpredictable and and. I think that's a big problem. I absolutely reject the, the, the view that the U.S. can gain from being unpredictable, which is one argument that uh, Trump does try to, to, to use every now and then. Um, and and the, the part of, the, part of the, the problem here, for lack of a better term, is that I'm, I'm actually somewhat sympathetic to the idea of, of eventual American withdrawal from Syria. Uh, I'm, I'm not of the view that the U.S. really has an interest in staying deeply committed in Syria, either today, in the future, or in the past. You know, I don't think that it was a mistake on, on Obama's part not to intervene on a larger scale in the country. That being said, there are good and bad ways to make what I think is a good policy, which is limiting your involvement in Syria. 
And Trump has been so incoherent, so unpredictable, doing it without consulting allies properly, either formal allies like the UK and France, who apparently have been taken by surprise a number of times uh, with his decisions on Syria, and local partners, including the Syrian Kurds, but others too. That in the end, what I think could be eventual benefits of limiting U.S. involvement in Syria are probably wasted because it's so poorly executed. Amar, you were just there, uh, you know, less than a month ago, and it just feels like everything's changed on the ground. <laughs> Absolutely. Do you, what is your take on, on kind of, again, this whole idea of the pieces being up in the air and the unpredictability that I think Tamar rightly mentions? Yeah, I mean, it, it was a it was a strange phenomenon to kind of leave the country on uh, on, on Saturday and then wake up Sunday to it everything we thought we knew and learned in on the ground to kind of completely up in there and completely uh, different. Um, I think uh, the the challenge now um, is is what the Syrian regime is also going to do if they start taking over uh, particularly important uh, border towns, for example, in Samalka, which is, is the border uh, is the is, is the border between Iraq and Syria. Uh, and, and Iraqi Kurdistan and Syrian Kurdistan, <coughs> um, all of these things become um, very problematic, especially when we think about, um, you know, Western patri repatriation of our fighters and things like that. And I think um, that's an entirely, I mean, we've talked about that before on this podcast, and, and that's an entirely kind of separate issue um, that, that is going to be affected by what, you know, the Americans do, what, what the Turks decide to do and what the Syrians decide to do. Um, on on the ground, with and, and and what kind of land they decide to reclaim uh, in this whole in this whole kind of episode. So, it's great that we have a very stable, thoughtful uh, person in the White House to kind of help us navigate through this whole phenomenon. I, I you know, if if only podcasts had sarcasm transmitters. <laughs> Um, no, thanks for that. I mean, it, it's it's bad. It's probably going to continue to be bad. And we don't seem to have any kind of stability that would potentially help the situation. That's my takeaway. <laughs> well, let's move on then to some other unstable situations. We And there's no shortage of them in the Middle East right now. But I want to particularly focus on some of the popular uprisings we're seeing. Uh, of course, uh, in Lebanon, there was a series of kind of like good-humored protests that sprung up, I would, you know, within the last month after they wanted to put in a series of absurd taxes. I mean, they wanted to tax, to tax tobacco, which, you know, okay, we do that here, but WhatsApp calls, uh, mm -hmm. which is, which seems very strange. I'm not even sure how you would go about doing that. Uh, but also we're seeing protests in Iraq. Uh, there were some in Egypt that were crushed uh, pretty quickly. So what is happening here? I mean, again, we're seeing headlines saying, oh, is this a new Arab Spring? Um, is it a continuation of the old Arab Spring? Is it just unfinished business? Or are we seeing something here that's entirely new? I think we're seeing the continuity of what started in Tunisia in late 2010. And for that matter, as, as some people point out every now and then, what happened in Tunisia in late 2010 when one individual you know, self-immolated, triggering all of that, uh, that was in continuity with what had happened in the past, right? That didn't start in a, in a historical vacuum. Uh, but clearly, you know, something started in late 2010. It never stopped. Uh, there have been ups and downs. Um, but, it, you know, the, the, the fundamental conditions that have been creating these, these uh, massive protests throughout the region uh, for almost 10 years now, or nine years, they're still there, whether it's, it's you know, repression, brutality, corruption, poverty, uh, constant daily humiliations at the hands of, of brutal and corrupt uh, regime officials, uh, police and so on, that hasn't changed them. I mean, you mentioned Egypt, Iraq, and Lebanon. There's also Algeria and Sudan. 
where right, some serious protests have been going on for, for months now. And, and those situations are still heavily in flux. Transitional government in Sudan, uh, presidential elections in Algeria, uh, with clearly in both cases uh, regimes uh, firmly trying to hold on to power and, and only opening up a facade of, of reforms to try to uh, shut down the protests, protesters obviously understanding that this is what is going on. It's a very similar pattern as we saw in Egypt, for example, and, and in, in other countries that have not sunk into civil war uh, since 2011. Um, so the, these dynamics are, 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 you know, to say that it's the, the same thing since 2011, it's, it's constantly evolving, it changes from country to country, um, but it, it is a continuation of these uprisings, and it's not going to stop uh, in the short term, or, or even for that matter, in the long term. Um, what I find very interesting with what's going on in Iraq and Lebanon, in particular right now, is that you've got uh, largely leaderless, uh, massive, large-scale protests in the streets, Yes, some groups are out there. Um, some are trying to take control of the protests, as we saw in other national situations over the years. Um, but the, con the one of the constants in all of these protests is that regime elites are trying to pretend that they will uh, make concessions, uh, whether it's in the form of elections or other kind of reforms. Um, and in practice, they do everything they can to hold on to power. Uh, so in Lebanon, which is pretty unique in many ways, uh, you know, the various regime elites the, with, you know, the Hezbollah and other Shia groups and the Sunnis and the Christians, with Sunnis and Christians being very divided on both sides of the divide, uh, they're trying to figure out a way to maintain their, their cross-sectarian elite bargain that controls the country. Uh, and the protesters are trying to have none of it. So in that sense, it, it is also a similar dynamic. Yeah, I mean, I think that, that, that that's uh, absolutely right. And we saw, for example, in um, Lebanon with Hariri and, and Abdul Mahdi in Iraq trying to, trying to basically, um, you know, provide some kind of reform packages, which were um, basically uh, dismissed by the protesters, because I think they're missing uh, the kind of the unique elements of both of these protests uh, in, in, Iraq and, in Iraq and Lebanon. Uh, and the, le the leaders kind of are forgetting that, uh, you know, this is a, a younger generation. It's, it's from the majority communities it, and, and they're pushing back against this kind of uh, enforced sectarianism in the country. Right. And, 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 and the way in which uh, the, the so-called uh, Mohassasa system, which is basically a kind of enforced sect sectarian apportionment uh, program where uh, different sectarian groups, different uh, Shia groups and Sunni groups and, and, and Kurds and Maronite Christians all have to kind of establish uh, relationships in the government uh, along sectarian identity lines in order to get anything done for their own community or even individually. Um, and so the, a lot of the protesters are basically saying um, that we don't really care about these kind of small concessions that you're putting forth, that we want to get rid of the whole system, this whole system, um, uh, the kind of corrupt system that you've uh, established uh, is not something that we're going to put up with anymore, right? We're talking rampant unemployment and, and, um, and all kinds of uh, corrupt behavior where uh, I think the leaders have basically used sectarianism uh, and sectarian identity as a way to hold on to power, as a way to line their own pockets. Um, and, and this kind of younger generation is basically having none of it. Um, and, and in Iraq, that used to be, you know, uh, we, people used to say this was the kind of the Saddam's, uh, you know, uh, heritage, and this is what Saddam offered us, and therefore we have to kind of continue with it. But this younger generation who, who largely grew up in a post-2003 environment barely remember or actually don't remember the Saddam uh, era and actually have no real ties to uh, the same kind of fears and, and, and um, 
uh, anxieties of the past. And so they're, they're, they're kind of more free in a way to kind of demand more brazen change, right? And we see that also in Lebanon with the way even Hezbollah is being um, criticized and, and, and chants in the South um, against Hezbollah, which we, which we probably wouldn't have seen so, so brazenly in the past have actually started to uh, pop up. So yeah, it started over kind of taxing of WhatsApp calls and the dismissal of a popular general in Iraq, but um, it, it's kind of ballooned into much more than that now. I mean, one of the things that strikes me, Amari, is you speak of the kind of youth movement there. I mean, the the images out of Iraq have been pretty horrific um, in terms of the violence, people being hit in the face with gas canisters and it, it being instantly killed because of the nature of those those canisters. Uh, but in Lebanon, it, it seems to be a, a bit different. The You know, we're seeing mass disco parties we're seeing you know people just blaring music lots of dancing there was i believe a movement of people holding hands across the country this is uh-huh. kind of a, a, a to me at least seems to be a different kind of protest than what we've seen in, in other parts and is that part of this kind of generational shift that you're speaking of I think so. I mean, I think I think Lebanon has always uh, been a bit interesting that way. I mean, if you re- think back to, for example, the the youth stink movement in of two thousand fifteen, right, which was against the the failure of politicians to kind of clean up the streets of of, of kind of piling garbage and so on. Um, and, and and so Lebanon, the youth of Lebanon, um, if anyone's ever been to Beirut, knows that it, it it's kind of much more lively and and uh, dynamic and it's a party so, city. It's a party city. It's you know sarcastic. It, they're 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 uh, they're much more kind of uh, how we kind of think about youth behavior, right? <laughs> so um, you're kind of seeing much of that kind of translate into the protests as well. Tama, do you have uh, do you have views on this? I would I would agree with that in the sense that you know in, in many ways Lebanon is is different. You know, every country in the world, every country in the Arab world is different from every other one. Lebanon in the Middle East is is its own case in many ways. It's small. It's extremely diverse. Uh, it's got, like Amar said, a, a very particular culture, especially in Beirut. Um, but at the same time, uh, keeping in mind Amar's point, which is, I think, absolutely correct, that right now in Lebanon and Iraq, there is a generational shift uh, that we can see uh, in, in those protests. Uh, I wouldn't exaggerate the difference at the same time on, on other aspects in the sense that it's pissed off people getting down in the streets because of a mixture of economic, political, and social grievances, um, which are somewhat different from case to case, but in other cases, they're not. And even what, what you refer to as the party aspect, you know, is there something particular in, in Lebanon? To some extent, yes, but I, again, I wouldn't push that too far. Go back to images of the protests in, in Egypt in 2011. And the amount of, of, uh, of organization and, and, you know, uh, you know, self-governance in many ways of, of, of some of those protests, especially in Cairo, uh, in terms of organizing local security and toilets and food and first aid and all that, um, it was stunning. Uh, and, and, and so it, Lebanon is not that different on, on that front, uh, again. But I think I think what we're seeing also is, is a kind of hopelessness of the youth, right? And, and, and that, yes. um, that that's kind of... Uh, the bigger problem, I think, which has the potential to kind of expand uh, pretty quickly because we're seeing uh, mass amounts of unemployment and a lot of these youth who are finishing university coming out with this kind of prospect of getting a job are are quickly realizing that, oh, you need to know somebody. If you're a Shia, you need to know some kind of Shia politician to get anything. Um, And in a country where the main source of employment is the public sector, uh, you kind of need a connection with a politician who himself or herself is also well-connected. 
Um, and so this kind of, you know, merit-based system where you go to school and, and uh, get a degree and get a job is, is basically out the window. Um, and, and, and so these politicians are, are basically using a system of nepotism and patronage to run the country. And, and that kind of corruption, um, which, which has kind of sectarian vibes uh, based on the kind of history of the countries, uh, both Lebanon and Iraq, uh, is something that the youth are just uh, are, are just kind of tired of, I think. And, and that's why this, you're hearing the kind of uh, chance that you are, which is to kind of dismantle the entire system, uh, drain the swamp, if you will, you know. With apologies to the Middle East. <laughs> right. Um, can I get back to something that you said, Amar, and, and Tomah, I'd really like you to come in on this too, is uh, we're hearing anti-Hezbollah chants. Hezbollah is is well entrenched in Lebanon. It's actually has a, you know, it's a political party there. It's It's been in elements of the government. Can you... You know, and, and to you know, we hear so much about Hezbollah that it's this major terrorist organization. Of course, it is, and it's responsible for many very deadly attacks. And but you know, the fact is, we, we don't hear much dissent from it in Lebanon, whether because of fear or love. Can you speak to the kind of perhaps dissent that we're seeing against that movement right now in Lebanon? Well, I think that goes on on multiple levels. First of all. Hezbollah has a genuine support inside Lebanon. Hezbollah is a political actor that provides social services, educational services, health, and so on. And there are a lot of people in Lebanon, especially Shia, but not exclusively, that genuinely support it. Uh, and that's 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 the case. And and you know some something that sometimes we have a hard time understanding outside, but it's an important point to make. That being said, outside of its base of support, it is uh, widely opposed and widely loathed in many cases, but not often heard because that's a sentiment that is not often heard, uh, largely because, as you said, of fear and repression. Um, but over the last you know, few years, uh, Hezbollah has taken on an increasingly active and important role in governing Lebanon. And you know, over the years, initially, it played a role a bit as an outsider, which allowed it to criticize without bearing much of the responsibility for Lebanon's many problems. Now that it is increasingly tied to Lebanese governance, uh, it, it pretty normally becomes the target uh, of criticism for Lebanon's failures. Um, and, and that, in many ways, was, was inevitable. I think that one, one element that is interesting here is the Iran dimension. And the Western media, the New York Times, has a big story on that, I think, uh, today or yesterday, um, th that, that some of these protests in Iraq and Lebanon seem to be targeted at Iran for its support for Shia militias in Iraq and some politicians for uh, Hezbollah in Lebanon. That's true. Uh, there is an element to that. Uh, in the sense that Iran is seen by many Iraqis and Lebanese who are Lebanese and Iraqis first, who are nationalistic, as a, a foreign uh, actor who is, you know, occupying or at least meddling in, in their own affairs. That sentiment is real. I think it, it, to some extent it's one of the consequences of some Iranian overreach in Iraq and Lebanon. But at the same time, I found that some of the stories in Western media in recent days have maybe exaggerated a bit the, the, the place of Iran in, in you know, the hierarchy of preoccupations for people in the streets. It's there, um, but as Amar was saying, as we were discussing uh, throughout this podcast, uh, it's largely domestic uh, standard grievances, right, that are, that are driving this. Yeah, and I think, I think to kind of uh, underscore that, uh, I, I don't want to use the kind of nationalism word uh, too loosely, but I think we are seeing a kind of broader pushback by the youth against uh, the kind of historical sectarianism that has, that has been part of, the, part of both countries since uh, Lebanon, since independence, and, and particularly after the civil war in Iraq uh, since, since the invasion. 
Um, and, and, you know, I used to talk to a lot of Iraqi refugees in Canada and they'd say, you know, we used to intermarry. Uh, we, we never even asked, uh, asked each other what, what uh, sect we were from. Uh, but post-2003, that, that's how you had to sell yourself, right? You had to kind of identify as Shia, identify as Sunni in order to get anything uh, in terms of government services. And I think the, the youth are basically saying, um, we, we're tired of doing that. But, we're, but what also, uh, where that also leads is your country becomes a kind of playground for uh, proxy wars and in, in terms of Saudi and, and uh, Iran and so on. And they're also tired of that, right? And, and they want to kind of push uh, forward a kind of nationalistic pride, you know, be Iraqi first, be Lebanese first, um, and, and uh, have and, and kind of explicit calls for secular governance, right? And in terms of um, being able to access resources and actual uh, jobs and so on. And, and so it, it, it's been interesting to see kind of um, the typical leaders of the country respond, particularly in Iraq, for example, you had Ayatollah Sistani come out and Muqtad al-Sadr come out basically calling for reforms um, and, and, and immediately getting <laughs> shouted down basically by the youth saying, you know, we're tired of, of, tired of these same leaders offering the same things over and over again every time we take to the streets. So I appreciate that this is not a fair question to ask you guys, but when I look at these protests and we look back to 2011 and, and you know, we've already discussed that this may be a continuation what comes next? Are, is this going to be like a, just another series of protests and then are eventually suppressed? Will there eventually be reforms? Uh, is this just going to be a constant struggle that we're going to see for the next, you know, couple of, of decades or generations? Do you have any insight on that? Well, I think it's extremely unpredictable, and and if there's uh, there's a lot of things that we've learned that, uh, that uh, over or since you know 2011 with the uprisings, and uh, one of the key things I think is is that we don't understand them well. Uh, we we it is very difficult to predict where they're going to go. Uh, we a lot of people underestimated the strength and ability to mobilize of uh, the masses to just go down in the street and protest. Uh, you know, one of the big lessons learned exercise among academics who study the Middle East was that we often exaggerated what we called authoritarian stability. Um, but at the same time, another lesson uh, over these uh, last few years was that counter-revolutionary forces are very strong. Uh, counter-revolutionary forces means uh, elites within their own countries, but supporting those in other countries, uh, holding on to power. Uh, we saw that, you know, the most extreme example of that is obviously Assad, who literally burned down the country. And that's, you know, almost the title of a very good book that just came out uh, on that to stay alive, both physically and politically. Uh, in Lebanon, uh, which again is always a bit different, but right now the, the you know, traditional cross-sectarian elites that have ruled the country um, since the end of the civil war in 1990, uh, they are going to do everything they can to hold on to power and, and to, 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 to give away as little as possible. We're going to see the same thing in Iraq and throughout the region. So that fundamental dynamic of disgruntled, disaffected youth and older people too, versus counter-revolutionary forces among the region's elites, uh, that, you know, opposition, that dynamic is going to stay for a long time. In some cases, countries are going to fall down into complete chaos, like we saw Syria and Yemen and Libya. There will be others. Uh, I, I, actually, I have no doubt that that is going to happen again. 
In other cases, at the other extreme, you will have some authoritarian regimes that will successfully completely squash protests, at least in the short to midterm, Bahrain being one example. And then you'll have uh, others in the middle that will muddle along, like Iraq is doing right now, like Lebanon is doing, like Algeria, Sudan, Egypt, which will blow up again at some point in the future. Um, but who will go in what direction? I, I don't think we're in much of a position to, to predict. No, I think I think that's right. I mean, I think um, Iraq Iraq's response uh, has been very different than Le, the Le, Lebanese response, right? And we've, had, we've seen, I think it was 200 or over 200 now killed in Iraq, whereas in Lebanon, uh, the most we saw, as far as I could tell, was, you know, some thugs from Hezbollah and the Amal movement kind of beating up protesters here and there. Um, so I think Tomas right in terms of kind of looking at where these countries fall on the spectrum of kind of full-on authoritarian crackdown versus um, eventual kind of budding of, a, of, of some kind of revolutionary spirit. Okay, so we've gone from kind of just everything's bad to everything's uncertain. Um, let's go to uh, Iran, which is probably a combination of both. Uh, I, you know, there's breaking news today. Uh, that basically Iran, again, is going to restart uh, operating a thousand centrifuges at its at nuclear facilities, which, of course, it, again, as I said in the introduction, is probably, you know, is being considered to be another blow to the JCPOA, the nuclear agreement. So, but this isn't the only thing we've seen in recent months from Iran. And, and Tamar, I wanted to talk to you about this for some time. The fact is, you know, we've had tensions, I, I believe, in the Strait of Hormuz. Uh, we've seen uh, attacks on oil ships. We've seen drones. Uh, we see uh, Trump almost attacking and then not attacking. And so I guess, you know, with this kind of being the latest in a series of developments in that region with Iran, what, what is driving this and what's the significance of it? Very, very easy well, question. Multiple <laughs> Sorry. Multiple things are, are driving this, but fundamentally, I think this is Iran trying to build leverage for the future, which is largely what it's been doing for 20 years, for that matter. So the U.S. withdrew from the JCPOA uh, last year in 2018, about a year and a half ago now. Um, and Iran uh, initially uh, put a lot of pressure on the remaining members of the JCPOA. So that's Russia, China, uh, the U.K., France and Germany. Uh, and, you know, Iran expressed its desire to stay in the JCPOA. But as Iran typically does, it is very good tactically at extracting concessions or at least trying to extract concessions from its counterparts. So Iran, realizing that especially the Europeans, but Russia and China too, really want to keep the JCPOA, it's been trying to gain concessions from them in exchange for its own staying in the JCPOA. Um, that's been obviously very difficult, especially for the Europeans. What we've seen, this is the fourth uh, tranche of uh, moves that Iran has made to... Uh, uh, to, to pull back on some of its JCPOA commitments, to uh, increase its enrichment, to enrich its uh, number of centrifuges, enrich, enriching uranium, and so on. Some observers were surprised uh, that uh, starting uh, that number of centrifuges in Fordo, which is a deeply underground buried facility, uh, it's a bit more than some people thought, but the basic reality that Iran would continue uh, pulling back on some of its JCPOA commitments is is to be expected. It's not a surprise. It's obviously unfortunate, but it's not a surprise. And and frankly, it would just be a bit ridiculous for Iran to take all of this lying down uh, and not uh, react to to U.S. withdrawal. 
right now, there are multiple future scenarios that Iran can be counting on. One of them is if Trump loses in 2020 and a future Democratic president does try to not necessarily rejoin the JCPOA, because it may be a bit too late for that, but to agree to some kind of JCPOA 2.0, um, which a lot of Democratic leading Democratic candidates have said they would support. Um, on Iran's part, uh, reneging on some of its JCPOA commitments is just rational in the sense that these are uh, moves that Iran can bargain uh, in 2021, 2022. It creates leverage for Iran, which is what Iran has always done with its nuclear program. The other scenario is if Trump wins again in 2020, and then we have four more years of Trump, Trump has been very clear that he is open to having a new agreement with Iran. And there are a few things that Trump says that I believe, but that one I actually do believe it. I do find that it's easier said than done because Trump says a lot of things and then actually implementing them and all the work and discipline and strategizing that it requires. He hasn't shown that, that he's much willing to do that. Uh, but in this case, Iran is thinking in the eventuality of new negotiations with a President Trump, not with a Democrat post-2020, uh, we still need leverage. We still need to create bargaining power uh, that we can exchange uh, for concessions. So again, either way, for Iran to just lie down and, and take U.S. accumulation of new sanctions without creating leverage of its own would just not make sense. So basically, there's no real downside for Iran in doing this. Well, the cost for Iran, uh, first of all, the cost for Iran is that the U.S. is responding with more sanctions. And these sanctions are very costly for Iran. The Iranian economy is going to have negative growth of almost 10% this year, uh, which is a massive cost. Right? Think yes. about that, minus 9% economic growth or something like that. Probably going to go back to low positives next year, but still, this is a massive cost. Uh, the second potential cost for Iran is escalation. Uh, that's a risk, right? Iran has been extremely good, I find, over the years at calibrating its provocations to try to avoid um, uh, provoking too much so that it would create large-scale reprisals. Uh, you know, I, I call it the salami tactics of Iran to try to always do a bit more, a bit more, a bit more to avoid eliciting reprisals. Um, but at some point, the, these, these sanctions do accumulate. Um, the other cost for Iran is that every time that Iran does that, it's a bit more difficult for the Europeans to try to uh, work very hard, which they are, uh, to ensure the survival of the JCPOA. It becomes more difficult domestically for the Europeans. It becomes more difficult for the Europeans in their relations with the U.S. Um, but at the same time, Iran is trying to calibrate that, right? Don't do too much so that you lose the Europeans, but don't do too little that you are not creating enough leverage and you're being hurt without responding. So... It's a difficult calibrating game for Iran, um, and uh, the risk for Iran is overreach, uh, as it is in, in other cases. So is it fair then to say that Trump's maximum pressure campaign is not working? Uh, I don't think it's working. I mean, my, my view uh, is, is very clear that the U.S. should have stayed in the JCPOA and built on the JCPOA as a first step, right? The JCPOA is never meant to be an end uh, in, in a process of managing tensions between Iran and the U.S. Um, I don't think the maximum pressure campaign is working in the sense that part of the, the logic behind the maximum pressure campaign was uh, to have an off-ramp so that there could eventually be talks between the U.S. and Iran to reach some kind of a new agreement uh, which uh, the U.S. Uh, would have, uh, you know, in, in which the U.S. would have used the maximum pressure campaign to extract more concessions from Iran, because part of the rationale for opponents of the JCPOA was that President Obama gave too much to Iran and didn't extract enough. That's not happening. Uh, that being said, 
uh, it really depends how, you know, when you, when you ask the question, is it a success for the U.S.? It depends how you define success. If success is as they say it is, trying to reach a new bargain with Iran, then it's not because it's not happening and tension is rising. That being said, there's another argument, which I think is, is also uh, valid, even though I personally disagree with it, that ultimately a lot of people in the U.S., a lot of Iran hawks don't especially want a new deal with Iran. They just want to bash Iran as much as possible. They want to keep Iran down. They want to weaken Iran. They want to strangulate it, choke it economically, politically, diplomatically, strategically. The maximum pressure campaign is doing that. Is it doing it as much as what Secretary of State Pompeo says? No, it's not. But is it significantly hurting Iran on multiple fronts? Absolutely. So in that sense, from their perspective, it, it is working to some extent. So I guess my last question here would be, you know, the fact is, you know, there was a lot of media reporting about the fact that, you know, Trump was going to retaliate for a series of attacks that Iran had been doing against oil ships, but then pulled back at the last minute. Is that undermining his own maximum pressure strategy? And, or, or, you know, what is Iran reading from that? And is that playing into its decisions with regards to kind of push uh, its, its boundaries as much as possible? I think it is undermining. Trump a bit, though I wouldn't exaggerate its, its extent. I think that the Iranians have read Trump uh, well, uh, accurately, and they believe that Trump does not want to attack them. They believe that Trump uh, will pressure them economically and diplomatically, but not will really limit the military component of his military, uh, the military component of his maximum pressure campaign. And the Iranians read that as opening up just a bit more space for them to be just a bit more provocative. Remember what, what we said five minutes ago, that the, the, the Iranian regime is very good at calibrating its provocations to ensure that it maximizes the limited space that it has without going too far. Sometimes it does go too far, uh, but it tries to avoid that. And I think that Trump's clear unwillingness to uh, step up on the military side of maximum pressure has been read in Iran accurately as meaning that that little space that they have is maybe a bit, a bit, uh, even a bit more. So final question I have you here. Tamai, you've just done a series of interviews in recent weeks about this story that I think has been in the CBC. The fact that Saudi Arabia has not been paying what it owes for the very controversial deal, the defense deal it has, the, the arms deal that has caused the Trudeau government so many problems. What's going on there? Why, why is Saudi suddenly deciding not to pay for this deal that, you know, we've talked about in this podcast before that it supposedly wanted? Is it still mad? I'm assuming it's still mad at Canada, but do you have any insight into this? Well, the, the first thing to say is that we don't know what exactly is going on. And we have to assume that the little information that we saw in media reports by the CBC in the last week are only the tip of the iceberg of what is actually going on. We don't know the outline of the contract uh, between Canada and Saudi Arabia. We don't know exactly how much money. We don't know the calendar. We don't know exactly how much was paid and so on. So that's, that's always a very good point uh, to keep in mind. Uh, the second point is that, as the CBC reported last week, uh, Saudi Arabia is apparently $3.4 billion late in its payments, uh, which is a huge amount of money. This is a $15 billion deal over 15 years, right? So a lot of that money has to be paid when all the in-service support comes in after the LAVs, the light armored vehicles have been delivered. So 3.4, uh, five years into the deal is a lot of money. Um, so the next question is why? Why is Saudi Arabia falling behind? And, and as much as we don't know exactly, Saudi Arabia is not a transparent regime on, on these issues, uh, probably two reasons. Reason number one is uh, Saudi Arabia is angry with Canada. 
Uh, we saw that. We've talked about this on this podcast a while ago. Uh, the dispute between Canada and Saudi Arabia in 2018, there are still no ambassadors. There is no reconciliation between the two countries. Keep in mind why Saudi Arabia agreed to pay $50 billion to Canada for uh, armored vehicles five years ago. It was only partly to actually get armored vehicles. When Saudi Arabia spends billions of dollars uh, buying major weapon systems from Western countries, it is it is investing in the relationship. It expects a deeper partnership with that country, whether it's the US, UK, France, Germany, Canada. Um, that deeper partnership is obviously not happening right now because of the dispute between the two countries. So from Saudi Arabia's perspective, spending all of that money doesn't make sense anymore because its need for the armored vehicles is only limited and it, it's paying $15 billion for something it is not getting, which is a closer partnership. Um, so that probably plays a large role in explaining why Saudi Arabia is so late in its payments. The other reason that may play a role, compounding that first reason, is the, the fiscal situation in Saudi Arabia. There's a large government deficit, economic growth is stagnant, uh, barely above 0%. Uh, so, you know, there's a lot of money, but money is still tight. Uh, so maybe that's that's factoring in. Also, but exactly what's the interplay between these two causes? We don't we don't really know. Okay, well, that was a uh, as usual depressing podcast on the Middle East. I want to thank both of you, gentlemen, for coming on and sharing your insights with us once again. It is so much appreciated. And uh, you know, given the way things are going, we'll probably have to do another podcast in two weeks, let alone two months. Um, but I, I once again thank you so much for coming on and. Um, you know, I think I'm going to go make some hot chocolate or something. <laughs> Hug a puppy. Exactly. Hug a puppy. Sure. Intrepid podcast puppy. Oh, yeah. That's <laughs> exactly. Let's eat our feelings. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Thank you. Sir.